Welcome to a special edition of Sounding Board. Before we started recording this podcast, we always wanted to include interviews with specialists and experts in their chosen fields. We created two lists. The first included people we thought we might be able to convince to come on, people who would give us a chance. The second was our fantasy list, containing people we'd love to chat with, but probably wouldn't stand a chance until we had a dozen previous interviews under our belt. Today, our very first guest is from that second list. He was born in Germany, where he studied economics before interning around the world in Bolivia, Paraguay, and here in the UK. He joined the IEA, the Institute of Economic Affairs, in 2008 as a Poverty Research Fellow before becoming Senior Research Fellow in 2013, the same year he completed his PhD at King's College London in Political Economy. In 2015, he became the IEA's Head of Health and Welfare and last year, 2018, the Head of Political Economy. Please enjoy our very first interview with Dr. Christian Niemitz. Thanks very much for uh, uh, letting us come to the IEA and uh, an interview and have a chat. No, um, pleasure is mine. It's a great show that you have there. Thank it's, you very uh, much. Oh, I like it. It's very informal, but yet uh, informative. It's, uh, <laughs> well, that's what we're aiming for. Um, so uh, you've got you've got a book out, uh, uh, and uh, and obviously this is uh, all about one of your. Well, I'm, I'm assuming it's one of your favourite subjects, which is socialism. It has become one of them. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I suppose the first question I want to ask is... Who funds you? <laughs> you see, I said I wanted to ask that question straight away. Uh, and you're like, no, you can't ask him that. You can't ask him that. And I'm like, no, he's going to be, he's going to be better than that. And he, and, we, and he can turn around and say, well, you do. Because we do. Yeah. I think, I think oh, you do. Okay. <laughs> it's me. Finally. So, so, so now, if anyone ever asks you, you can just you can just point to us. Does that make it easier? Um, you will get a lot of traffic, though. Then. <laughs> well, that, that's, I mean, that's kind of what we do need, I suppose. Uh, we need not we that need kind of traffic. You don't want that. No, that's probably true. Uh, okay. Occasionally, I, I tend to just reply to random people when they ask who funds the IEA, and I just reply with I do. Um, but it's yeah, it's probably not the sort of traffic that we that we want to. We want to have. Well, okay. So rather than going for my first question, and as we're talking about as we're talking about traffic and, and, and being online and that kind of, and that kind of thing, uh, you're obviously on, on Twitter a lot, uh, and uh, and the reason that you uh, uh, got in contact with Andrew is because you're you're both on Twitter. Now I am not on social media at all, uh, and I'm, I have no inclination of going on Twitter uh, whatsoever. Uh, but certainly my impression is that both of you two actually really quite enjoy it or you enjoy getting into the into the arguments is yes is, is, yeah so is, is is that the primary reason why you're doing it? is it just about sharpening and honing your argument is it just about poking some lefties you know what, what's the reason for you being on there it's a combination I often uh, I, I use it as a way to plug uh, and, and promote larger publications such as this book for example where I've, I've, I've mostly built up a lot of expectations on it just on Twitter and then if somebody has a, a serious question or an objection to it I'm absolutely fine with that fine with with just having a, a civilized discussion about it but most of the time you just get random people shouting at you and um, you you can instrumentalize them to build up a bit of momentum have a bit of a 
uh, a show fight with an opponent, with a shouty opponent, and uh, if it gets entertaining, that can be a way to generate uh, traffic and an audience. Yeah, so it's, it is mainly about uh, uh, just getting more and more people to, to see the conversation in that respect. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, uh, it's not that I have a hope of uh, convincing some tanky, some full-on communist, uh, thinking, oh, if if they have a look at my book, surely they will become classical liberals. That's that's not the way it works. Yeah. But there are always uh, people in the background uh, who who are watching this, and and maybe they'll see, okay, this uh, this guy actually has better arguments, and the other one is just being hysterical. And and do you think there's still a sizable proportion of people on Twitter that are reasonable and kind of waiting to hear arguments and be swayed? They must be there. They would just be more passive accounts. I think there's, uh, there is the, the active Twitter, the part that you see, but I think a lot of people use it to monitor arguments and don't necessarily want to get too much involved, but still use it as, a, as an alternative news source. And they are my audience, yeah. Yeah. Um, so going back, to, going back to your book then. Uh, uh, where you're, you you lay out the kind of uh, the, the several stages uh, that socialism always always takes. Um, at the moment, kind of in the polls, it's generally accepted that certainly the the young are more turned on to socialism at the moment. Yes. Do you think that's do you think that's actually the case, or do you think it's because of either the way that they've been they've been polled or just the uh, the kind of things that they don't understand for in terms of they, they don't see what true that's the wrong term they don't see that capitalism was all around them giving them the, the google and the ubers and, uh, and and things like that um and and that they just don't really understand what socialism is well it's it's always the case uh with i guess any political current that you have some people who are fully committed to it and understand it very well and can articulate it very well and then you get a wider circle around it of people who get the basic notions but who uh, would struggle to articulate it very well what exactly that is and it is like that as well but that that doesn't mean that it's not real there might be some who are um, of course, you, you, you can say uh, that they just don't understand that, that capitalism is good for them, but those would be counter-arguments. That, does, that uh, doesn't mean that they are not, right now, with the understanding that they now have, uh, proper socialists. Uh, I think they are, so some might be persuadable, but um, I guess there must there is probably a socialist a parallel socialist podcast being recorded somewhere right now where somebody asks you know i find i, I come across people on twitter who are capitalists <laughs> are they really capitalists or do they just not understand that socialism would be brilliant for them so we uh, fall into the same trap there do you think is is are there parallels on kind of both sides and i don't even like saying that there are sides kind of in this mm. argument but uh, is, is is that a problem for for people on the on the free market side? Um, just going on, and they just need to understand it a bit more. There might be some. It, I, I think there is a big asymmetry that, generally speaking, free marketeers, classical liberals, understand socialist arguments quite well. If only because we can't escape them anyway. We we cannot avoid them. You're constantly surrounded by left wing ideas. I think if we uh, had to pretend to be a left winger, the sort of ideological Turing test, most free marketers would find it fairly easy. <laughs> uh, you don't get that in the opposite direction. That's why lefties trying to parody a right-winger or especially a free market here is, is usually absolutely terrible because they come up with things like trickle-down economics, uh, the poor should starve, 
stuff that just nobody actually believes and uh, you, you can just tell from that they they don't have any understanding of classical liberalism whereas in reverse of course a classical liberal uh, understands left-wing ideas most of them would have been lefties at some point so were you a lefty at some point of course <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, you grew up in, in, in West Germany yes um, and so was 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 the fact that you were so you know perhaps so close to a, this uh, socialist state did that influence you into becoming a libertarian or what was the point that changed it for you where you thought I've I've had enough of this now I'm, I'm gonna I'm oh no that that didn't influence me at all uh, I, I lived in uh, the southwestern corner of West Germany for us the GDR was was miles away if I I knew that it existed but uh, had otherwise had absolutely no concept. Of it. I mean, I was born in 1980, so I was nine years old when the wall came down. I remember people talking about it, um, and I sort of imagined uh, people from the GDR. They they were described a bit like like time travelers from a more primitive age. That that was the the way you would understand it as the, as a kid. That, that somehow they they don't have the technologies that we have, and uh, they 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 were talked about like somebody who lives in a maybe a very rural area and they're just a bit behind the times that's how i imagine it but i, I saw absolutely no uh, connection to the, the economic system that they that they had nothing to do with that um no i, I was a, a teenage lefty like i guess pretty much everyone uh became then more appreciative of the market economy when i was maybe 18 or so uh, but nonetheless, saw myself on the left. I was a member of the Social Democratic Party and of the the Young Socialists, the youth organization. But uh, whenever I was watching parliamentary debates, uh, I found myself agreeing far more with economic liberals, so meaning either the Liberal Party or the more liberal wing of the Conservative Party, and had that conflict for about a year that I mostly agreed with the people who should have been my opponents but emotionally wanted to be on the left-wing side and spent about a year looking for excuses uh, trying to reconcile those things that um, the mind was pulling in one direction the heart was pulling in the other direction and at some point just admitted to myself look this is this is a farce <laughs> I, i'm not a social democrat i'm a liberal and then left the social democratic party and, and joined the liberals well, I think that, so, so you, you touched on something there that I know you've mentioned in the past in that left-wingers and socialists, they tend to, they tend to focus on outcomes um, as opposed to actually how, how we're going to get there. So they, they, they always use like very kind of emotive arguments like, well, if you're, if you're for helping the poor, then you must be a, you know, a left-winger um, as opposed to the, you know, the, the, the right and, and liberals and libertarians tend to, I think, concentrate a bit more on, on facts and on what actually works. You know, let's look around the world and, and see, does, you know, is Hong Kong more successful than Venezuela, for example? Um, one, thing I, um, one thing we talked about on one of our previous podcasts were uh, different sorts of preferences. So uh, you've got revealed preferences, stated preferences and falsified preferences. And I remember doing a bit of research and uh, apparently when there gets to be about 10% of these kind of shouty militant people on either side, then they start dragging people along with them. That's the, apparently that's the tipping point where you, get, you can get 10% of people and then after that people start falsifying their preferences and just going along with the crowd. Do you think that's what's happening in universities and within 
wider society because you only have to go onto Twitter or Facebook and everything seems to be left wing or, or, or socialist. There's not it's not really an equivalent online for you know for, for, for libertarians. Um, do you think that's because the the, the, sh the shouty ten percent who really truly believe in it are just influencing the, everybody else? Yes, but that doesn't mean that uh, the less committed ones, that their convictions are not real. I would compare it to the way you discover music as a teenager, where initially you go along with what the cool kids are listening to, but then at some point you start to actually like it and it becomes a real preference. It's not that uh, you uh, just pretend to like the cool music in order to be cool and secretly at home listen to something else. It's, uh, you, you, you start really liking it, but um, that happens because you start with this attitude that you want to like it because of the image reasons. I, I think a lot of people get drawn to left-wing ideas because uh, it has all, all this positive image and you, you want a slice of that, of the positive social feedback, the social approval, and uh, you approach it with this very benign attitude, the attitude of, I want to be convinced, and then of course it becomes very easy. And then it becomes a real conviction. So you mentioned you mentioned defining uh, uh, as a as a liberal. Do you do you struggle with the definition of of liberal, or rather, because of the kind of Americanization of the term liberal, do you feel you have to say, "I'm oh, not that kind of liberal, this kind of liberal," and have to actually describe what this is? Also, it's means. also over here as well. We've got the liberal Democrats, <laughs> who are neither liberal nor democratic. Yeah, well, I think that the term still has a meaning. I, I might add classical liberal just to just avoid it. I used to call myself a libertarian for a while, but that's more often now, uh, I guess, associated with uh, anarcho-capitalism, absolute purity, and to, to steer clear of that, I, I just stick to the old-fashioned liberal. I think in, in my case, I don't really have that, that problem because it becomes fairly obvious uh, fairly quickly where, where I'm coming from. But um, yeah, I guess if uh, if I had to write for an American audience, then that would be an issue. Yes, you maybe wouldn't be able to describe yourself as a liberal in exactly that way. Um, so going going to the uh, going to the other side and talking about um, talking about capitalism, uh, I I certainly think that um, people have almost civil, similar problems with with that term as well, um, and. I wonder whether people confuse um, capitalism with corporatism more. Is that something that you see? That does happen. There is just a danger of on the liberal side that uh, if if we go too heavily on oh no that's not capitalism that's corporatism, that it starts to sound a lot like that wasn't real socialism. Yes. That you start to talk about something that's uh, so absurdly pure that is. That it will probably never be reached. I think some degree of, um, of of corporatism is probably inevitable. You can't stop companies from organizing in in uh, lobby groups and try to influence legislation in their favor. It's just that there's corporatism and there's corporatism. There are forms that are relatively mild and harmless, and uh, there are forms that 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 really do very heavily rake a market. So um, I'm not a purist. I'm not that bothered if if uh, if a market isn't absolutely pure. But as long as you have a, a reasonably competitive sector, that's that should be good enough. 
So rather than capitalism, another, another term that's obviously used a lot is, is, is markets, is free markets. Do you have a problem with you know, governments of the day, you know, at the moment we've got this you know, putative conservative government that uses the term free markets and in their last manifesto talked about free markets, but actually the, uh, the markets they're talking about aren't particularly free in terms of the amount of, amount of regulation and red tape and, uh, and, thing, and, and the amount of tax. Do, do you think that that language needs to change a bit so that we talk about a regulated market or even a well-regulated market if, mm. if they want to be political as opposed to free? Or do you think that reserving free for that purist view just kind of has a problem? Where, where do you draw the line? Well, with, with uh, conservatives, actually, I'd be happy if, if I saw more of them talking about free markets. At, at the moment, it seems, seems to be the other way around. They're trying to distance uh, themselves from it, treating Thatcherism more like a, like a sin of youth, something to be ashamed of. And uh, no, I'd, I'd prefer it if there were more people at least identifying as free marketers, even if what they put under that label isn't quite the way I would use it. But if uh, if it became a term that you can use without immediately apologizing and qualifying it in whatever way, uh, it becomes a problem when too many commentators just start from the presumption that we currently have free market capitalism, because that's the left's version, of course, that, that we currently have an extreme form of ultra-liberalism and uh, a lot of conservative uh, right-wing commentators then take that on board and try to signal that they're reasonable by saying yeah I am broadly pro-free market but of course not as extreme as it is now and thereby completely accepting that we currently live in, in an ultra-capitalist economy when we really just absolutely don't. Uh, it's always when was the last time that there has been a big liberalization in, in Britain? It's, it's just not happening and a lot of the important sectors, the housing market in particular, uh, are, are very heavily state dominated and this isn't me comparing the status quo to some impossible libertarian utopia just empirically there are housing markets around the world that are a lot better than ours in, in I'd say in most developed countries the housing housing markets land markets are a lot freer than, than in Britain so I'm, I'm not, not even arguing for some some purist utopia but just um, some middle-of-the-road, half-baked, halfway okayish market would probably be good enough if we were more or less in line with the OECD average in terms of house prices and rents. I think then uh, a lot of this uh, anti-capitalist backlash wouldn't have happened either. And that's that's partly a driver as well, that if, uh, if you're renting a place for the first time, you, you find out that you're, you're spending half of your salary on rent and you live in a shoebox and it's mouldy and uh, everything's rubbish, and then you have the left offering what seems like a plausible description of that, saying you're being ripped off and the problem is capitalism, and, um, and the center or, or the right doesn't have anything to say on that other than, yeah, we've got... Um, a program here to address rogue landlords or something, then of course that, that seems more compelling. So on, on housing then, uh, you talk about other, other systems, other countries. Um, what, are the kind of, what are the kind of easy ones that you think, or, or, or certainly which, which other systems would you borrow from um, as, a, as a way of, uh, of, of, of making the market freer in order to, one assumes, be able to build more 
homes in oh, Luxembourg okay. and things no, 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 it's 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 just that on um, in a lot of the continental markets there is a, a more rules-based system where a, a local authority or some planning authority would designate a place for new development and um, or where you uh, where planning applications have to follow a certain procedure but where once you do, you 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 uh, comply with the requirements it cannot be reasonably refused it has to be uh, if if you take all the right boxes you will automatically get permission it's not a political process whereas here it's all, it's immediately politicized that if somebody objects or some group of residents object they have the power to stop it whereas uh, in in many other systems uh, residents don't automatically have a right to to stop you just because they don't like development that would be their problem it's not their land unless you are putting other people's safety in danger or you or unless you are seriously altering the townscape in 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 a way that would that would have massive that would totally change the character of the town uh, the, the fact the mere fact that you don't like it is not a reason uh, doesn't give you the right to stop other people from developing their own land and that that would be a big step that's I'm not talking about some super liberal system here but just uh, that that difference um, in in in, uh, in default options the default option in in many other systems is that normally owning land means you have a right to build on it unless there's a specific reason why you shouldn't have that right uh, whereas here it needs to be discussed first by in inverted commas the community and the community uh, those are inevitably who turns up at planning meetings only the nimbys and therefore that's actually the part of our uh, current system that is closest to democratic socialism, ironically, and is also the most dysfunctional part, because who? Uh, because it's it's very self-selecting. Who wants to take part in uh, long-winded and boring, tedious meetings of that kind? Is is only the cranks who try to uh, who have a, an, an interest in, in in shutting down development. Those are the ones who turn up, and and they then get their way. And if we had a democratic socialist economy, then uh, every sector in our economy would work like the planning system does now. Well, I, I always wonder how, they, whenever you talk to democratic socialists about their proposed system, um, and, you, and you try and get into you try and get into the detail, I, I, I never I can never get out of them. How you know? So everybody has to make decisions. Particularly, if you say you're working for an organisation, and say that's run by the workers, and the, the workers have to make the decisions about everything. Does, is that every single decision, and then do we do you scale that up to the entire country? You, you, no, nobody can possibly make all decisions for you know for for, for every, everything. So you'd, you'd you'd end up with these, I guess, administrators, wouldn't you, who would who would just just make the decisions for you, and uh, and do everything. Um, I just it's it's that scalability that, that perhaps that's why that's one of the reasons why the housing system doesn't work. Um, I'm sure I'm going with this. So, no, but on, on the scalability, that, that's absolutely right, of course. That's why democratic socialism is all perfectly well and good in, in tiny groups, in an Israeli kibbutz, 300 people just talking about agriculture. Okay, fair enough, but uh, you can't organize a large economy in that way. And that's a good, that's an effective way to argue with socialists. Socialists like to talk about abstract, big aspirations 
and uh, it all collapses as soon as you ask a few more mundane and practical questions. About a year ago I gave a talk, um, oddly enough, at a Trotskyite conference <laughs> and uh, at some point I asked them how are we going to decide how many razor blades we're going to produce. And even though this was supposedly the, the creme de la creme of the Trotskyite left, nobody could answer that question. And uh, some were getting annoyed, thinking that I, I was a, a vicious troublemaker for, for asking a question of that kind. But then, well, yeah, w w what happens if we have the revolution today and uh, we, we have to make those decisions somehow? Well, even in Russia, they used to kind of copy Western values, didn't they? Um, and, and prices when they were kind of allocating, when they were allocating the, the, the goods and when they were trying to decide how much, you know, how much to, to, to build of, of any one thing. They still had to kind of follow us. I, don't, I, I can't possibly see how socialism would work on its own. You know. Yeah, supposedly there was a, a, a Soviet economist. I don't know if this is true, but an anecdote of some uh, economist who who supposedly said uh, that when the world revolution comes, hopefully at least one place, ideally Switzerland, should always stay capitalist, so that you could just imitate what they do. <laughs> yeah, it it appears to me at the moment that there's this idea of, of, of what the left wing is, uh, which appears to be kind of out-and-out -out socialism, and then everything else that isn't that is branded as right-wing, whether, whether it's actual right-wing values like uh, borders and licenses and regulation, or it's things that the, the conservatives and, and libertarians have kind of taken on board, like free speech and, and free markets and just a, just a lack of state control. It seems that everything that's not far left is labelled either fascist or Nazi or far right. Um, so yeah, the, the Overton window, if you like, is, is, is moving over to the left. What do you think, if anything, we can do to, to, to combat that and to try and make the pendulum swing the other way? Oh well, if, if I knew that, uh, <laughs> I would have done it already. There, there, there is, um, there's, there's the critical mass problem that is there are just not enough of us. We, we don't have the power to redefine terms, really. But um, I guess it doesn't help that some uh, on the, the liberal libertarian side, there is sometimes a tendency that, uh, that people get so annoyed with, with the left because, understandably, they're constantly under attack uh, from them that this then leads to a sort of doing X to own the lips attitude where... Uh, you start defending people from, from the old right, people who are actually not ideologically close to you, but just because, uh, to well, to own the lips. And uh, that, even though it might sometimes be tempting, is, is not the way to go. It's, it's, uh, it's, it still does make sense, uh, even though you, you cannot avoid other people lumping you together with, uh, with, with, with people who you don't actually have much in common with and who you don't see yourself as an ally with, to stick to the, the classical liberal line and saying, no, this is what I am, you can label it right-wing if you want to. Um, but no, I'm, I'm a liberal, that's a, that, that's a consistent way of looking at the world, it has a long tradition and that's, uh, it's generally good stuff. So do you think on, 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 that, on that front with the kind of hijacking of terms uh, and the fact that it seems now that more and more people can be described by the left as just fascist, just go you know, straight for the most extreme label, do you think that does reach a tipping point where people just start saying, oh, that's ridiculous, that person's not a fascist? And, and, and do you think actually that the more they do it, 
the more ridiculous they look. Ideally, but I, I don't see that happening. Um, I, I've often heard the argument that since um, terms like like uh, racism get thrown around so casually, that that label would lose its sting. But no, that has that hasn't happened. It's still when when you're publicly uh, accused of, of of something like that, that can still absolutely ruin a, a reputation. And um, no, I, I think the the left has been doing this for for a long time, and it always feels like it's it's accelerating, but it doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. It's a bit like on on, on the other side that, that uh, people have this idea uh, the NHS is being privatized, but then you you can see this going years and decades back back, and uh, it's it's always the same argument, and it, it never quite happens. So no, I, I guess this is an equilibrium of sorts that we have. It's going to, to stay that way. So you think, do you think it's going to get worse before it gets better, if, if at all? Uh, well, with, with political trends I'm, I'm always a pessimist. I don't think it will get better. Uh, worse? Uh, possibly. And, and do you think that that's largely because of these uh, apologists for capitalists, uh, capitalism and free markets um, that aren't willing to actually stand up and go, hang on a minute, no, it's, you know, it's it's not about um, it's not about hating the poor. Uh, you know, it's not about all the the, the common tropes that the, the left uh, come out with. Um, uh, it it is about it is about the values of uh, of, of freedom and of, and of choice. And you know, look look at how uh, you know poverty is produced and all, all this kind of stuff. Are there just not enough people that are on that side of the political argument just saying it outright? Yes, there is that, but I think there are just not enough people uh, of that persuasion around full stop. It's not just that there's not enough who are outspoken ones, but that that is, is generally a small group. And that there is uh, the the incentive system also that if, uh, if you are a right-winger and you want to come across as reasonable, the best way for you personally to achieve that is to denounce your own side and, and thereby uh, so a person like that would, would not say actually free markets uh, and liberalism is about helping the poor. It's more about saying you guys, you are basically right uh, in your characterization of your opponent. They really are horrible uh, people. It's just that I'm different. I'm not like them. There is that, that, that incentive system and, that, and that's why uh, you get the, and Tim Montgomery had this project, The Good Right, a couple of years ago. In just labeling it uh, that, in that way, he is effectively saying, yes, the left's description of, of the right is basically correct. We are the baddies. It's just that I'm a bit less bad than <laughs> the others. Yeah, it's not that compassionate conservatism and, and all the other yeah. things they, they, they call it. They often, and you, you touched on this as well, Nick, in that whenever, even some of the most ardent capitalists, when they're describing the benefits of capitalism, they just focus on the tiny bit of the economy that is socialist. So they say, look, capitalism is good, but only because we can spend this and do this, we can have DHS or state-run education or, 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 to, or take your pick. Well, and that does seem to be the kind of the, the dominant um, uh, political view, certainly uh, centre, right of centre, I would say, which is very much for the mixed economy, so that the free market is there so we can spend the money on the good public services. Mm. Um, but do you think that also, uh, I mean, I, I think that's still kind of doing the same as what you just said, which is kind of playing to the game, saying that they're right, by saying the NHS, roads, 
education, all the stuff that people just assume without thinking should be provided for by the state, um, by saying, well, we've got to have that in order to pay for this stuff, that they're just um, accepting the premise again that the state should run things. Well, and you're also accepting the premise that markets are a necessary evil. They, they are just there so that we can spend money on the NHS. They, and that, that's why in, in the whole tax avoidance argument that uh, if, if you go too aggressively on that as a, as a, as a right-winger on clamping down on tax avoidance, um, you are again accepting the premise that companies are mostly there to provide tax revenue. Whereas of course their main job is to provide goods and services that consumers want to buy. If they also create tax revenue that can then be spent on, on the NHS, okay, even better, but that's not uh, their, their main role. That's a, a nice side effect of it. But it is uh, it is true that we're quickly taking the advances of capitalism for granted. That uh, if you if you were thrown into a time hole and uh, coming out thirty years ago, so not not talking about the Middle Ages, but uh, still loosely the present, but just let's say three decades back, there are a lot of things that that you would miss. Um, Okay, you wouldn't miss social media, but a lot of, a lot, a lot of people would. And uh, just on, online retailing, online search engines, stuff like that, apps, which uh, you would really miss. But nonetheless, or, or cheap flights, uh, air travel being something that, that you do regularly rather than only on very special occasions. But nonetheless, the way we talk about these sectors, uh, you could think that everything is absolutely terrible. Everyone hates the tech giants, they're spreading fake news and Amazon is ruining the high street and uh, cheap, um, cheap air travel uh, is, is got its whole show being mocked, come fly with me. And not, not an unfunny show, but nonetheless, there is, uh, of, of course, if you, uh, if a time traveler from 30 years ago, to, to reverse my former argument, arrived today, didn't really know much about it, they, they would think that, uh, that that this is all terrible stuff. So do, do you think that those are dominant views in the country, that uh, you know, the loss of the high street rather than Amazon and, uh, and you know, the big bad tech giants, or do you think that's that's a bit more just uh, to, to use the horrible phrases, you know, liberal elite and all that, you know, Westminster bubble and all that. You know, is it, do, do you think actually out there people people do um, worry about that, or they just get on their phone and order something on Amazon? Well, you can do both at the same time. You can say in a survey, yeah, this is all terrible, and nonetheless use it yourself and not seeing a connection there. That's why. I'm not a fan of this uh, list trust narrative. She has this phrase that uh, young people are, what does she call it, Uber riding, uh, delivering Airbnb yeah. and stuff. And I think they're all capitalists that they, they, they just don't articulate it well, they just don't know it yet. No, that's not the way it works. By the same token, you could say that, uh, look, the average American consumer, they're, they're using goods and services from all over the world. They can't possibly elect a protectionist president. Yes, of course they can. <laughs> and uh, it, it doesn't, uh, with, with political preferences, it, it doesn't necessarily work that way. That uh, just because you're, you're living a certain lifestyle, you should logically have preferences X and Y, doesn't mean that you will have them. Well, no, it's just it's basic cognitive dissonance, isn't it? You know, you can, it's, it's, you know, your brain can quite easily do one thing, but, but believe another in another compartment. 
Yes. So um, you, you, know, you said you're a, you said you're a bit of a pessimist, certainly uh, when with regard, with regard to politics. Do you, do you think I've I've said this uh, to Andrew before uh, that uh, I think basically the the country needs another dose of socialism uh, in order in order for this generation to actually see what it means and you know the economy needs to tank and places needs to get shut down and people need to use, lose their jobs. I mean, it's, it's horrible stuff, but they need to see that that's what socialism is in order to then maybe swing back the other way. Is that is that kind of your view or do you think there is still a way out? Well, I still have some hopes, a, a very faint hope that the whole thing will just uh, go away as quickly as it arose. I, I just don't see it happening because once you've built a critical mass, then uh, you have all these these people who are totally energized for socialism and um, it may be tied to a particular political project now and that project may disappear but those people won't disappear they, they will still be there it's uh, it's more that what used to be center left institutions such as say, the new statesman or um, think tanks like the ippr that they've uh, at least have people who have who have gone fully socialist that isn't going to disappear overnight the best thing would that could happen would be that it would just deflate itself that it it somehow loses its momentum <laughs> no pun intended and um, yeah it, it it seemed to emerge almost overnight out of nothing ideally it would go back to wherever it came from I mean, we've uh, we've avoided uh, using the B word, um, uh, and, uh, and and certainly I don't want to make this into a, a Brexit podcast. But and there's there's the famous but. Do you think that if if the UK ever does leave, uh, do you think that might form part of any kind of resetting? If I suppose there's, there's too many buts and ifs here. Uh, if the government of the day. Um, uses the kind of the newfound powers that it's got to deregulate and to cut tax and do these kind of things. Do you think that could be a moment? Yeah, firstly, I, I don't think that that will happen. I mean, Brexit will happen, but it, it will not be used for, for liberalisation. That's why I've always been... Um, well, that's why I've never been enthusiastic about Brexit. Um, there was a time when I thought it could be mildly beneficial, but it's not going to be... A liberal revolution, anything of that kind, because the the main obstacles to free market reforms were never on the EU side. It's always been the case in environmental regulation and areas like that, that uh, Britain has gold-plated EU regulations, always going far beyond anything that was ever required by the EU. And you can't tell me that there's a British government that has an appetite to massively liberalize, and that is just Brussels bureaucrats um, who are stopping them from doing it. The obstacle is uh, political preferences among politicians and themselves, and uh, of course public opinion. Those are the obstacles. And there are vast areas that we could already liberalize. We've talked about the housing market as the most obvious example, but also the healthcare system. There is nothing that the EU does to impose a monopolistic state-run healthcare system on Britain and many EU members have far more liberal systems. Uh, so, so therefore the things that, let's, let's, let's say if you had a, a liberal, determined liberal government uh, saying we really want to, to shake up the British economy, it would, and, and let's say they are in the EU, 
uh, it would take a long time before they get to a stage where they would say, right, now the EU really is the obstacle. We want to go further, but it's EU regulations getting in the way. There's so much that you can do before that, that that's not what I would worry about. So you've written a few books um, about the NHS and the latestly the, um, the book on socialism, The Fellow Idea That Never Dies, and we'll, we'll put links to these on the podcast and on the website. Are you working on something else at the moment, or are you taking a break? Well, there's no such thing as a, a break. I'm now reading other socialist books, and uh, I've, I've just finished... Uh, well, uh, you've had an episode on fully automated luxury communism. <laughs> yes, that's right. done one too. And I'm writing on a review, a joint review of, of that now, together with another one, The Socialist Manifesto, by an American author, Bhaskar Sunkara. And, yeah, I'm just looking at where, what, what have the socialists been up to in the meantime. Yeah, I, th I think they're coming at it coming at socialism from a slightly different angle to, to, to that you. That might be true, yes. Yeah, the problem is a lot of these books are only coming out now, whereas I finished writing more than a year ago. The book came out, I think, in the beginning of this year, but I stopped writing much earlier. That's why some of the more recent stuff uh, isn't in there. For example, I don't mention Ash Saka, I was barely aware of, of that name at the time of writing. And, um, yeah, there's just... A book is never truly finished, and this this one is no exception. And there have been lots of developments since then. And and uh, books coming out. When I was writing this, there were articles, but this whole millennial socialism, there there were there weren't as many attempted to to define what this is really about. And now you've got manifestos coming out. You've got this this socialist manifesto, uh, fully automated luxury communism is a manifesto of sorts and uh, other books of that kind coming out and I'm, I'm now having a look at them and trying to, to relate that back to what I said in the book. It still seems to me that it's always the same it's always the same arguments that have been made again and again. Even, even Aaron Bastani's fully automated luxury communism it's still the argument that just now the time is, is right to move uh, to move to socialism or, or to communism. We've, we've seen it in the, in the past where the you know, of course we couldn't have had it then, but now we've got enough to we can automate, we can we can mine asteroids and all this other rubbish that he's that he's going on about. Now the time is to is to move on. So do you think that, that can you? I guess my question is, can you foresee any new arguments, or are we just going to keep seeing the same thing again? And there's going to be a, like a fourth and fifth edition of your book in thirty or forty years time with. You know, with Corbyn's Britain in the 2020s and, and, and all these other examples, it's just going to be the same thing happening again. I'm afraid so. Um, if I had to write a second edition today, I can't see what I would substantially change. Because there's new material that, that I would incorporate, but mostly the, or, or exclusively, this is just confirming what, what I already said and there's, there's more examples of the same kind. And um, and it is the the, the author of uh, of this book, the Socialist Manifesto. Uh, I'm I'm quoting him in the book, but I I was having some doubts. Uh, I was thinking maybe I'm being unfair to the guy. This is just one newspaper article that that he that he wrote. Of course, he can't uh, spell out an entire manifesto if he only has 800 words. Maybe uh, when when his book come out may comes out, maybe there's there's a lot more. Maybe there is a proper manifesto, and my criticism of him misses the point. But having read the book now, no, absolutely <laughs> not. It is still uh, it's whenever the, they they're trying to define how their 
version of socialism will truly be different. They just escape into waffle and go back to to restating the the original intentions, the original aspirations, but they're no closer to to saying, okay, here's how I am going to to achieve that. And um, this book is is probably better than than most, uh, certainly better than fully automated luxury communism, although that's uh, that's an extremely low bar. But uh, at least he, he's honest in the sense that he recognizes that uh, that yes, the Soviet Union was socialist. He, he doesn't try uh, to, to pretend otherwise. Talks about Maoism a lot and says that was socialist. But then ultimately, it's all about yeah. Well, we've now learned about the importance of human rights, and and therefore it will be different. And uh, there's there's not much about how. Uh, it's, it's always just well, there's there's bad luck and economic underdevelopment, and then the wrong decisions, the wrong kind of of socialism. But um, I've actually recently finished uh, another book, an old classic, namely a Lenin book, uh, The State and Revolution, book that he wrote in 1917, just before he actually came to power. What's fascinating about it is that. It does not at all read like the manifesto of someone who wants to, or who is about to, build a totalitarian state. There is no such thing as authoritarian socialism as a philosophy. No, no socialist is, is authoritarian before they come to power. If, if you read this book and don't know anything about the Soviet Union or socialism, you would think, oh, this just sounds pretty nice. It's not like the communist version of Mein Kampf. It's not like uh, somebody is spelling out a, a dystopia, not, not, not at all. He, he talks mostly about how socialism will not have to be repressive. There, there will be absolutely no need for that because you will have the people in charge and uh, it, it will not be like, you, he says you only need a repressive apparatus if you have a minority trying to oppress the majority because that's hard work for that you need an elaborate system of uh, a police network and prisons and he says we, we won't need much of that because we will just be the majority we will, we will be a government of the people who should who are we supposed to repress just the minority of, of capitalists and counter-revolutionaries that's going to be easy we, we, we won't need a big police force for that so, uh, Christian, um, if you start uh, a liberal revolution anytime soon, um, be sure to let us know. Um, we'll let you know if we're about to start any Great. liberal Yeah, you would be the podcast ministers. The, <laughs> Excellent. And we'll, we'll bring order to podcasts. No, no, that's not right. Um, thank you very much for, uh, for having us at the IEA. Uh, and, no, no, uh, thank you. Taking part in the conversation. Uh, you've been listening to Sounding Board. Uh, thanks very much. <laughs>